0: listening to Quintilian, the Latin teacher podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sellers. Sierra Manny teaches Latin at Hunter College High School in New York City. Before she began teaching, however, she worked as a writer and journalist, with articles and editorials appearing in such publications as Time Magazine, the Jackson Free Press, and the Heckinger Report. More recently, she has also been a writer for the ABC television game show, The Chase. Sierra received a bachelor's degree in classics and English from the University of Mississippi and a master's degree in education from Hunter College. I began our conversation by asking her about tempera Mores, and Other Complaints, a TEDx Millsaps College presentation that she delivered In September of 2017.
1: Um, So I'll start by saying that I end up in life, I've found many times with people just asking me to do things. And uh, I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. Um, And at the time, I was an education reporter uh, working at a local news source in Mississippi called the Jackson Free Press um, via the Heckinger Report which is an education journalism site based out of the teacher's college at Columbia University. Um, I felt that um, some of my work had some community impact. And so people wanted to know what I felt about Mississippi education and where it's going.
0: What are the greatest challenges facing the public education system in Mississippi in your mind? As you point out in the talk, you are yourself a product of that system and Mm -hmm. you reported on it for many years as well. So you know the system inside and out. What are the greatest challenges that the system is facing?
1: Well, I will say it was only, well, I guess it might have been a year or two, but I would say that the greatest challenges I think are the ones still present anywhere, which is a failure um, of sufficient integration and I think a... um, a sense of detachment from, I think, collective responsibility in our, yeah, in educating children. Um, In Mississippi, I think that, um, like anywhere else, adults, of course, value their children and want them to do well in the world. Um, But I felt living in Mississippi that a push for significant, meaningful progress in things was always pretty slow. I honestly, I try to avoid looking at that TED Talk Um, (laughs) some days. It was was a rough time when I had done that. But I think looking back, um, revisiting that question now, that I think my opinion is the same. Um, I've got a couple of cousins, small people being educated in Mississippi right now and they seem, you know, like happy, healthy, healthy, thriving children, but they're also in the suburbs, um, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but I think Mississippi also just has major infrastructure issues and I could go on and on and on, uh, (laughs) regarding that. But I, um, one idea of mine that I think has developed since that career and transitioning out of is the connection between space and how people use space, um, as both a tool and also just as um, just a way to make life happen for themselves. So.
0: Well, many of the problems that you point out certainly are, are not unique to Mississippi. We have many of them in Tennessee, many of them all across America. Two proposed solutions for some of these educational problems that have been endorsed and embraced, especially by those on on the right side of the political spectrum, are. Charter schools and vouchers. Mm -hmm. So, what sort of impact have charter schools and vouchers had in Mississippi?
1: So, um, charter schools had a fair amount of resistance in Mississippi starting. Um, I was somewhat unaware of their impact when I was a very young reporter. I was, say, 23, 24, but I was immediately suspicious. And I saw that people were one. I I um, was suspicious of the politicians that um, were into them, right? Because you never really hear from these people regarding any other educational initiatives. But like, aha, here's a here's a charter school. <laughs> what is the deal? Why do you like this so much? Um, and then vouchers, of course, one of the stories that I remember reporting on um, was about a student who had um, was a, an exceptional needs student had quite a few needs, and his grandmother wanted a voucher in order to send him to a different school, um, but met significant barriers. One, schools who didn't have special education programs, but there's vouchers anyway. Um, So these um, not super useful um, tools that I think, um, again, that community and financial investment um, in the success of public schools, I think could fix.
0: And we should clarify for the audience, by vouchers, we mean essentially taking public educational dollars, giving that to families, and then they can use those dollars for private school tuition, essentially. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, In your talk, you mentioned a story that you spent 10 months working on, a story about how students in Mississippi are taught civil rights. What did you learn from that reporting?
1: I learned from that reporting that Mississippi does it Um, better than some other places. So, I'm living in New York now, and I see that there is this idea. I think that New York um, is uh, automatically racially progressive, um, based on this, um, this like this beautiful multicultural spot that it is, which is really, really cool. Um, but being able to talk frankly, about racism, Um, saying Black people when you mean Black people instead of saying BIPOC, for instance, or people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, Mississippians are better at that. I think Southerners in general are better than that. Um, Have more familiarity with, um, topics of racism and more comfort with them. Um, so while there might have been, um, periods where you of course have you no, know, uh, the civil war truthers, right. But you also have people whose local history is, yeah, like my, you know, white, there were white children saying, you know, I had uncles who were, uh, in the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, they knew about this happening or my family knew these people or, you know, you know, everyone's cousins in the South, as you know. Um, (laughs) And so um, Mississippi is, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a real Southern Gothic. Sometimes I do feel I'm a big William Faulkner fan and it's, kind of grim but also slightly hilarious in unexpected ways and just how bizarre is it to just be like yeah i know that guy he's in the ku klux klan (laughs) yeah well all right that's my fun fact for the day you know (laughs) right um so yeah but i i did learn though that people um Are incredibly invested and I also learned that um the push for teaching civil rights in Mississippi was done by groups that wanted to make this um teaching encompass um all social justice movements of this time you know inspired by the push um led by black Americans but like for immigrant workers and for the poor and for women and also for queer groups um queer here meaning LGBTQ plus I learned from one of my um A friend of mine who was part of that movement um, to teach civil rights in Mississippi, um, which, by the way, happened after the um, Edgar Ray Killen trial and conviction um, in Mississippi. Um, And I think if I'm remembering correctly, um, a Neshoba County, uh, Mississippi um, killer um, of those three civil rights workers in Neshoba County. Um, I should fact check that. and so people in Neshoba County were like, yeah, we should teach about this. Um, but you know, back to what I was saying, you know, there were queer people saying we would like to teach about all of these things. And like reading those notes from people saying, you got to cut out all the gay stuff, you know, And like, if you want this curriculum at all to talk about the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, you have to make it center sort of on, um, you know, those events that I think are mostly familiar to um, people who would be familiar with the topics. So very layered, complex stuff. I mean, Mississippi gets a lot of um, flack sometimes, even from me. But um, people everywhere are complex, including in Mississippi, have complex goals and interesting ones.
0: You're listening to Quintillion, the Latin Teacher Podcast. Quintilian is supported by a Bridge Initiative grant from the Committee for the Promotion of Latin and Greek, a division of the Classical Association of the Middle West and South. More information about these grants is available at camwis.org. That's C-A-M-W-S dot O-R-G. If you're enjoying Quintilian, please give us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast distribution platform. In your TEDx talk, you mentioned the Mississippi Succeeds plan. This is a strategic plan, long-term strategic plan for education in the state and improving it. I looked it up, and here's how it addresses the teacher side of the equation uh, The goals are to increase the rigor of education preparation programs, to support teacher mentoring and induction programs, to implement professional growth systems, to continue implementation of professional development, to increase diversity in Mississippi's teacher pipeline, Mm -hmm. to expand opportunities for teacher leaders, and to improve skills for current teachers. So I I have a lot of thoughts about these proposals, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to hear your reaction first.
1: (laughs) Um, I can say that it's, um, at the time, um, I felt that while it was fine, you know, great, like we see an issue and there is one. I didn't think that the initiatives that Mississippi was choosing at the time were, um, going to get, uh, us any closer to those goals, I think is my, was my just initial take, you know, at this time, um, there was a state department of education leader and she was so unpopular um, with the state government. Um, and near the end of that time, I think the sort of, um, culture wars that were dominating the news cycle, um, Tended to distract a little from um, inter- more interesting, I think, policy conversations like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in particular, uh, White House initiatives coming down at the end of the Obama administration regarding um, trans students' abilities to use the bathroom that align with their gender um identity also too um Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were both running for president. And I witnessed a lot of people in the education committees in the House, um in the Senate, um really focusing their attention that way. Um mm-hmm. and so part of that also was part of the reason that I had to get out of journalism. <laughs> I felt as if my ability to stay teachable um instead of reactionary was um, slipping away um, and I I think I shuffled that behind me
0: okay one, one thing surprising or maybe not surprising to me about this strategic plan I couldn't find anything in there about raising teacher salaries or improving teacher working conditions and maybe that shouldn't be surprising. Um, you know, many years ago when I first started teaching, I had the good fortune of having a very wise and very experienced mentor a couple of doors down, a French teacher, André Soufrain. Actually, he lived in Marshall County, Mississippi on a horse farm. He was French. Well. <laughs> and, and he would often say to me, you know, if if we if America would just double teacher salaries, then in one generation we could improve the entire educational system, we would have one of the finest educational systems in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, he was, he was a European socialist, and Americans right. just aren't gonna, going to embrace the kind of taxation that would enable that to happen. But right. I guess my question is, why, why do politicians so, so often ignore what seems to be such an obvious issue, teacher salaries, class size, and teacher working conditions?
1: I wonder the same, and I have a couple of hypotheses. So I think my initial response would be that teaching is considered gendered work. Um, so in the South, especially, um, the stereotype of a teacher is someone who is typically the wife of someone, um, you know, someone, um, in capri pants and happy to decorate her classroom. Um, I think it's a very infantilizing view of teachers and one that I saw people give. And so that though, is this sort of cutesy idea of a teacher but say also in suburbia in a private school, hardly, you know, the strict marms like, you know, Latin teachers are. And then of course you have the public school systems where, uh, where of course, um, most of the children within them are black or Latino. And, um, I think too, um, I've been reading, not reading rather, but listening and watching, listening to and watching TikToks about, um, these like long-term goals of privatization of schools and this idea that, um, I mean, if a kid can go to work, you could have, you know, a worker that you don't have to pay as much. I think so. I think that there are a lot of things that sound like conspiracy theories as they relate to the public school system, but I don't think, in general, that America values educating uh, people enough. Um, and I think that that's why it's so, it's so dismissed. So I think the one there's that, right. It's who cares if you're already wealthy, um, you know, you already have what you need, who cares about school. So there's one, right. but then there are also people who are simply trying to work and trying to live. Um, and I think rightfully, um, may not always see the material uh, benefit of having a formal education and would prefer to work and have money in their pocket. So I think there are myriad reasons. I know me personally, I think that it's to the benefit of the populace that we all have as much access to education as we can. Um, and it should be encouraged as much as possible, especially for children. Then need to be outside um, working, um, you know. I like, I like seeing industrious children. I like seeing <laughs> children who are involved and interested in things and busy. Um, but like, I'd rather that be on like a project or something they're interested in rather than the Chick-fil-A line. Right. Um, if they can help it.
0: In your TEDx talk, you're very candid about the problems facing the Mississippi public educational system, mm-hmm. but you also seem really optimistic for the future to be specific. You're very optimistic about all the bright young people in the state. Um, And in in your words, they're just not getting what they deserve in terms of the people who are in charge of education policy. You gave that talk back in 2017. So six years later, do you still have that degree of optimism for the future of education in Mississippi?
1: Hmm. I think I still have that level of optimism for young people everywhere, especially in Mississippi um, who want better and who are intensely creative. Um, I I would like to say that I think that in my lifetime that people can turn, you know, things around, but then like you see, you know, Tate Reeves is reelected for the governorship And you're like, you know, barnacles, you know, um, I, 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 I met someone from South Africa visiting Mississippi and said that Mississippi can, um, understands who its villains are. Right. But, you know, in the presence of a hero, um, you know, in the presence of someone who can help, you know, very skeptical, very distrustful. Um, so I mean, I think um, after a life, I think of being sort of chronically online and reared in that internet culture of, you know, always doubting and like always criticizing. Um, Am I still optimistic? I think short answer, I wanna say yes, you know, because I mean, why not? there's, you know, there's still hope in the box, right?
0: (laughs) Okay. Mark Clark, he was a professor of classics at the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg for 30 some years. He finished up his career at Mississippi State. And he once said to me that whenever he had a really good student, especially a major or a minor in classical studies, that invariably they would leave the state of Mississippi and never come back. So how can Mississippi and Tennessee and other places like that prevent this sort of brain drain from happening?
1: Hmm. Well, I think as it concerns um, Latinists and Hellenists graduating from the public universities, I would love to have had a place to work. You know, there are two places I can think of in Mississippi that taught Latin. Um, Murrah High School, an incredible high school in Jackson, and Ridgeland High School, my own alma mater, Um, maybe more than two. Um, Madison Central High School, again, a suburb. Um, in Madison, Mississippi being a suburb and then Clinton High School. But all these places are within, say, a 15 minute drive from each other, right? Um, and I love the idea of Latin being accessible to everyone, especially, you know, in a public school. Um, but those jobs just aren't there. I knew people who went to school to study comp sci and were saying, I can't find a job here. I have to leave. So, you know, you have that promise um, of, you know, you get this like nice tech job that people make zillions of dollars at, you know, but you can't even get one of those in Mississippi. Right. Or seeing people working the same jobs as their grandparents did. in like the same factories, for instance, you know, right. just that sort of generational thing. It's just hard to grow, you know, and it's hard um, I think to see, and I mentioned Tate Reeves, the um, governor of Mississippi recently reelected. I remember his, it was either him or Phil Bryant cutting the ribbon at you know, the opening of some school. It was a, a school for some type of technical work, which is valid work, still an education um, worthy. Right. But when they talk about it, saying, you know, it was really this tone was like, at least now these people will have jobs. It was Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, like, let's 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 roll roll that back. OK, like you're not you're not Booker T. Washington here. You know what I'm saying? Like you're <laughs> you're you're not. Um, you're not on. you're not on that sort of like leveling of the player of the of the, of the playing field. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I if I felt like respected, if I could walk around, I hate having to have make take a car everywhere. If I felt as if there were other young people there, um, if I felt as if the places that were fun to live and shop in, you know, there are places that are excellent if you're eight. And excellent if you're 68 and I think if you're 18 to 28, 38, well, I mean, you know, what's there to do, you know, in Mississippi, I felt like a cow, you know, like waiting to be milked or harvested, you you know, at any point in time. And it's just altruism is just so much when you're young. Um, Like I, you know, I want, I want the world to be able to give something to me without always feeling as if I have to always be giving back. Um, So, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about a success story. Uh, as a journalist, you published dozens of articles about a wide variety of educational issues, school funding formulas, charter schools, teacher training programs, Teach for America, teacher licensing initiatives, and so forth. I want to ask you about an article you published in July of 2017 for uh, the Heckinger Report called The Only A-Rated Majority Black District in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So this is about the district in Clinton, Mississippi, which is just west of Jackson. Is that correct? Yes. So, how has Clinton been able to achieve this level of success?
1: Intentionally integrating, Um, you give people um, a decent school. And you do that by um, having a strong school community where um, the teachers are respected um, and people Clinton had such a green flag of people who've been working in the district for you know, 30, 40 years. And I know for me um, looking for a school in which to work myself in New York, that's also a green flag for the school where I currently am. Um, you know, nice people want to retire from here um, and they're willing to stay and stick it through for their community um clinton also has the benefit of being kind of a college town mississippi college is right there and then jackson state university is not so far off and there are multiple community colleges around so there is this sort of air of there being school all around Um, and also in the 70s they like i said incorporated um these um mostly black neighborhoods and um, when kids have um, investment and access to resources, they typically do fine um and that's what happened and of course, you know as people um you know they inevitably do their um white flight as areas um I think sociologically it's like a, it's called the tipping point you know as a place tends to get blacker um it is because more and more white people are, are moving out. Um, and then, you know, housing, uh, prices adjust in ways that certain groups can't afford them who historically couldn't blah, blah, blah. Um, but that was, you know, it is just of that. but in going to the school, um, you know, it was a truly wonderful place. It reminded me of my own high school experience at Ridgeland High School, which was um, pretty close by. Mm-hmm. You know, our school um, was consistently criticized for, they would call us Ratchet Ridgeland, or, you know, like, uh, call the school ghetto, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, but, like, we were also consistently A-rated, you know, by the time I was there. But inside the hallways, you would never think that, like, there was one predominant racial group because... You know, they're just kids hanging out, which I thought was pretty cool.
0: In addition to your journalistic articles, you've also published a number of editorials. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about one in particular that you published for Time magazine, or at least the digital version of what used to be called Time magazine, uh, time.com. Uh, a very provocative and controversial title, Dear White Gays Stop Stealing Black Female Culture. So yeah. you wrote this originally for the Ole Miss Student Newspaper. Is that correct? Yes. And I'm sure that you were not expecting to end up on CNN with Don Lemon?
1: No, not at all. <laughs> so, okay, so
0: tell us the story.
1: Um, so back in that time, I was just like some spunky kid hanging out at Ole Miss and Um, I am just active and interested in the world as undergrads are. So some months before that, I had written an article about like, oh gosh, the title is so vulgar, but it was, oh, it was called how to sext a black girl. Right. And so the media that I was seeing at the time was sort of about, this um vine was big and twitter was big and there are all of these like cultural groups coming together to have conversations about life and sex and things and so that was that um and it was popular i was basically saying like you don't have to adopt these like sort of swaggery mannerisms in order to relate to someone who's a different race than you like you know we're just people Mm -hmm. and so also at this time this is ridiculous undergrad drama um but i'm hanging out at this time and all of my friends are gay young men um, and also at this time, like Real Housewives is really big. And there are some people from Ole Miss at that time who are very popular social media stars now. And I would see them on campus and they would be horrendous to the service workers. And they their online sort of like dating behavior with black young men was um, sort of atrocious. And, but when it came around, like being around other black girls, you know, there was this sort of like, modulation and speech and like affect and also in their money making ventures and trying to get like more followers for their accounts, it was also sort of adopting that. Um and I thought it was just totally racist because it was like the people that I saw doing that, I was so overly critical of Mm -hmm. and (laughs) that article started off so hot because people let me start off hot you know um my twitter personality at the time was like that and this is of course no excuse because i know people say like that's how things were at the time but i do remember it was a time where sort of being i want i do want to reuse the word reactionary um and also you know being a little outrageous was rewarded Um, But all that said, though, yeah, I was noticing this trend in media of um, adopting, like, these, like, stereotypical Black women mannerisms um, for people that were getting, you know, quite famous. And then I was seeing, you know, people like myself and other Black girls and women, like, you know, everybody wants to say girl, but, you know, if I'm actually feeling a way about something you know, then I'm judged just like the angry Black woman, say. Um, And also was a reminder, too, because Ole Miss is the type of a place where um, birds of a feather, you know, do flock. Um, And it's got this really unique culture that is like where, you know, there's like this frat culture, right? And I would be friends with guys who would, like, be telling me all of their you know, escapades or whatever. And they'd be like, Oh, I love black guys. But like when you see them, when their fraternity, for instance, is doing uh, the like plantation ball, um, for instance, or when their fraternity comes out for like, you know, singing racial slurs or whatever, like it's this, like I'm hiding behind this sort of um, like veneer of like protection that you can adopt as a white man, um, that, you know, just provides safety for some people, but I can see, and I still see now the way that, um, that was controversial for a lot of people. People said I was super homophobic and I was right. transphobic and I had no idea about the experiences of gay people. Um, and I did not want time to publish it. I was just in my student newspaper and I was thinking about, you know, other 21 year olds when I wrote it, Um, But then time reached out to me and I texted my best friends and I said, people don't like this and I really don't need more attention. And my friend said, no, but actually, like, you have to let this be published. And so I did. And it was a really wild ride. Yeah.
0: Okay, I do want to come back to Ole Miss in a few minutes. Uh, But another question about your writing, in addition to your journalistic articles and your editorials, You've also done some writing for television, including your recent work as a writer for a trivia game show called The Chase. So, for the benefit of those who haven't seen this program, how would you describe it?
1: Um, The Chase is what happens when you have like some Jeopardy people, Jeopardy champs who just like still are practicing, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) The Chase is a show where, You are three, um, I want to say just average people who like trivia and the three of you band together in order to bank money that you get from answering questions. But you have to do this by being better than um, the Jeopardy champion who um, is known as the chaser um, is their job. Um, So it's a fun show because um, you kind of have to not suck to, <laughs> to win money <laughs> because you know on jeopardy first i don't think anyone say sucks right but say like in the um cutthroat quiz bowl world in which i've been reared um since i was a wee child right mm-hmm. it's uh, like on jeopardy say your last place you could be in the neg but you know you still go home with something on the chase, if you uh, don't get anything, they're like, oh, sorry, got to go home empty-handed. You know, they've done that many times. So it's not exactly a feel-good show, but um, super popular amongst trivia buffs and was a super fun experience. Um, yeah, it streams on ABC. Okay.
0: <laughs> so how did you come to be a writer for this program?
1: I love watching Jeopardy! with my grandfather. And one day I watched a guy uh, who was a two or three day Jeopardy champion went again and I thought, I think he's so fun. I bet that we would be friends. And so I followed him on Twitter and he followed me back and turns out that was a good guess. So we ended up being friends and he was also a writer for a hundred thousand dollar pyramid. And this was, I think, also twenty seventeen. So this was also what puts leaving Mississippi on the radar. Oh, okay. there are the jobs out there, um, and uh, I get an um, email from a producer. He's like, "Hey, uh, I Eric um, told me about you. Would you like to audition to write for Pyramid? Uh, you know, can you send me some sample questions?" And I do. And he says, "Oh, so sorry. You know, there are only so many people I can hire, and I can't go for it now." And I thought, okay, but still cool. So five years later. It's December. I'm living in Brooklyn at this point. I get an email from that guy. He's like, "Hey, you want to write for The Chase? You have to say yes by tomorrow. And the pay is more money than you've ever seen in your life per week. Um, let me know, and I like, will." Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it <was> pretty sick.
0: <laughs> so, what what is the key to success on trivia shows like The Chase or like Jeopardy? D- does your brain just have to be wired a certain way? to be able to recall random pieces of information very, very quickly, or are there ways, do you think that, that average people can train and prepare to play against people like Ken Jennings and James Holtzauer Mm -hmm. and these other trivia fanatics who just wipe the floor with the, the opposition on the chase?
1: So I think to be great at trivia, you need to trust that what you say is right. And, um, also have um, a fastidious attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And also you have to want, I think, to be good at it because um, those people are intensely competitive um, and they study, they spend so much time studying and are constantly doing trivia. But I think it's also too, just because they like it. Um, And I think that... Um, there aren't very many girls in professional trivia, say, or in high school quiz bowl, which is where I my interest in all this began. And I do think it you kind of have to be um, a little, um, a little smug, you have to be <laughs> a little because you have to trust. That what comes out of your mouth is going to be the right thing to say, and I can say that that has gotten me in trouble so many times in my life. But trivia is the one place where doing that you can get consistently rewarded. Right. Um, it's kind of a thrill, you know. It's quite, it's quite fun, and I will say that um, a lot of my students um, at, at my high school, the idea is like Latin kids. Um, inquisible kids tend to have that in common. Because why bother, you know, studying Latin is the idea. But also why bother memorizing the capital of every country in the world, Um, you know, or all of the Formula One players or mm-hmm. players, drivers, you know, things like that. Um, So, yeah. Um, but I will say, too, that it is an extremely... Well, I could, I think there could be more gender representation across, um, it could be more than just boys, say, um, and it is more than just boys, but it could be way more than just boys, say, um, but yeah, I like it. Uh, Some of the coolest people I've ever met in my life have come from the high school trivia world. And that world of course is where, um, the professional trivia people get, uh, it's big players from.
0: Sure. All right. I'd like to hear more of your personal story. So you're from Canton, Mississippi, just north of Jackson. What was your life like growing up?
1: Well, I grew up, yes. So in Canton, my mother is the most wonderful person in the world. She was very young. She was going on 17 when she had me. And I think my dad was too. Um, And he, you know, was in and out of juvenile detention and then prison, but, um, I also have like an enormous family network and my grandparents. And so my mother and I live together, of course, in my grandparents' home and my grandmother's a homemaker and my grandpa's a Marine vet and he loves to read, you know? Um, and growing up, he always had these, um, he kept an encyclopedia set in the house and I was an intensely neurotic child. Um, I remember watching an episode of a show called cow and chicken, and I remember watching it. And the whole joke of the episode is that Cal has made for chicken, a cow pie. And the whole gag is he won't eat it. And I'm like five years old watching this. And I'm so distressed because I understand that there is a joke happening with what a cow pie is, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> I go to my grandfather in tears, like I'm watching the show and there's a cow pie and I don't know what it is. And I can't get the joke. And he's like, have, what about looking things up? <laughs> and so from that weirdo child story is how I learned that the encyclopedias were in the home mm-hmm. and that I could try to find the answers to questions in books, which was such a valuable skill. Um, and so, you know, did that. And then I ended up going to high school. Like I said, I was in the boys, not the boys and girls club, but I was educated in Head Start in preschool. And so I also learned to read quite early. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cultivated um, an early love of reading as a child, and then you know I went off to school and I could already read, and that rocked because school was pretty easy. You could already read, um, and because of that, I was consistently affirmed by my teachers, and so school was a safe space for me. Um, Great. Right. I was also just alone with a lonely kid, kind of chunky, wasn't really running around outside, so I continued just to spend a lot of time, um, yeah, with my head in a book.
0: And how did you first develop an interest in the classical world?
1: I went to the National Spelling Bee when I was 14 years old. And then I learned what etymology was from there. And that was cool. Um, and I was super interested in language in general. I get to high school. and my first year of high school, I actually take Spanish for about three hours. But I said, buenos noches to the teacher. And she made me feel bad. She said, buenos noches. It's daytime. And I was like, okay, <laughs> no, hostile. Because, you know, I was like a gifted kid and no one had ever told me that I was wrong about anything before. And I was like, wow, (laughs) this is a traumatic experience for me. I dropped, I joined quiz bowl class. (laughs) And then the next year, of course, I needed language to graduate. And I had a great relationship with the Latin teacher because he was best friends in high school with my math teacher, who was my quiz bowl coach. And I was like, nice, I'll take his class. And that's how I ended up in Latin class.
0: So is it true that you won the state spelling bee when you were a kid?
1: It's true, yeah.
0: Congratulations, right?
1: Thank you very much. And
0: if, if your Spanish teacher had been nicer to you, then maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation, right?
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm saying, like, wherever you are, Miss Lady, I hope life is good. But, okay, you did not need to embarrass me like that. That's <laughs> fine. But, yeah, Um it was really cool. Going to the National Spelling Bee was bananas. It was my first time on an airplane, first time seeing Washington, D.C., first time seeing homeschooled children. <laughs> so, yeah, people, oh, Harry Potter and uh, the half Blood Prince had just come out. And there were these old men protesting with signs that said, you don't have to be a wizard to be a good speller. And I thought, I had, I had never thought that anyone would have a reason to care that people did the National Spelling Bee. Um, <laughs> I learned this year, by the way, that the announcer um, is a classics professor in Vermont. He
0: is. Jock Bailey is his name, right?
1: Yeah. Super cool. And um, I reached out to him, actually, because I've met a friend. And she was like, yeah, that's my professor. And I said, wow, you know, small world.
0: Fantastic. All right. So you decide to go to college at the University of Mississippi, No one Mm -hmm. calls it that in the South, right? right? Ole Miss. Miss. When you went to Ole Miss, did you have the intention of majoring in classics?
1: I did. Um, I was a first-generation college student, and I, in fact, had no idea Ole Miss and the University of Mississippi were the same school until I got the acceptance letter um, because I had no imagination of myself as a college student right. um, i had no idea what doing this would have meant for me but i was a quite competitive high school student um talking to harvard talking to Millsaps college and excellent school i got um national achievement which is um, um a facet of national merit mm-hmm. and so i had a lot of nice authors um but i had gone to old and it was a nice fun campus and the classics department, I'm telling you, Latin teachers have always been nice to me. The classics department there is still full of just like the best people in the world. Um, uh, Dr. Eileen Ajushin and also Dr. Molly Pasco fringer just, just the warmest hearts you could ever, you know, meet. And being up there and they were quite kind to me and they made me feel as if, you know, that were a thing that I could do. And, you know, I thought, well, I got a scholarship. I do not want to be in my grandparents' house. Um, so I might as well do what I was good at in high school, and um, yeah, I stuck with it. I'm happy I did.
0: Fantastic. So a few years ago, the house next door to me sold. A new neighbor moved in, and Sierra. Before he unpacked a single box inside the house, he put up an Ole Miss flag on his front porch. Cool. He moved away a couple of years later. New neighbors moved in. The very first time I met them, their toddler is wearing an Ole Miss t shirt. Uh, Two doors down, some more new neighbors move in and they display an Ole Miss flag on their front porch 365 days a year. I should mention I live about an hour and a half away from the campus. Ole Miss has such a dedicated alumni base, uh, such a dedicated football fan base, even though, frankly, their football team is never really part of the national championship conversation. I made a student really, really mad by saying that a couple of years ago, by the way. Yeah. So my, my question is, how, how do you explain this sort of dedication to Ole Miss? And, and it just seems to me that so many people associate the school with their identity more than almost any other school that I can think of. And wh- why is that, do you think?
1: Oh, you know there are layers to this, and so um, back when I was, you know, an internet stirrer just for fun, um, the egg bowl, for instance, which just happened, Ole Miss one, hi, Toddie, and i like, I'd be like, oh, the planters versus farmers game was on everybody <laughs> this is Mississippi State.
0: Yeah, um, let me let me interrupt you. I'm sorry, but I don't really follow college football. I, I used to, but not anymore. And did I see a clip where the Mississippi State football coach at that game led the team out of a tunnel on a four-wheeler? Did you see that?
1: Um, I didn't see it because I was actively trying to avoid it. Because okay, okay. Internet. <laughs> but I I'll let see.
0: you continue the story, okay? Okay.
1: <laughs> But um, so Ole Miss has always had this reputation of being a quote unquote, like rich kid school. Right. Um, and that is, of course, uh, related to people's like relative access to slavery money. Right. Like if you have, you know, like sort of like um, plantation wealth still in your family, essentially Um, Ole Miss uh, seems to be like a heritage school. And then, of course, there was also the Colonel Rev thing and this idea like. This is what the South is like. Um, And so I think many people also correctly characterized the school as racist. Um, But for the people who seemed resistant to that, I think that what they were into was like this idea of wealth, which Ole Miss has a lot of. Um, And so with all that money, though, um, Ole Miss has funded um, quite a lot of things as a flagship university. There are really cool programs there and some pretty excellent scholars And I think it's just such a fascinating place. You know, I said, um, I think of the South as like 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 a living Southern Gothic. Like, I don't know if I believe that's quite fiction any longer. I'm super into William Faulkner, too. I've got a William Faulkner tattoo on my forearm. You can be a hipster and find your people in Oxford, Mississippi. You can be someone who's a descendant of enslaved people in Oxford, Mississippi, and then find your inspiration from it being um, the first integrated, you know, sec school. Right. And like thinking also about the medical school and the law school there. And um, I think people go to Ole Miss for a lot of reasons, but I think most of it is that for whatever reason, and that also that sort of um, sleepy town that it is when the students aren't there. um, It's a, I think anyone can find their own story to tell there. Plus Oxford is just a beautiful town. It's so, so wonderful. And if you're listening, you should absolutely visit. Um, I know for me there, they also give excellent scholarships. And so I was like, well, you know, I'm not paying to do this, you know, (laughs) so (laughs) if you'll give me the money, I'll come up there. Um, So, you know, uh, yeah. I think that there's always, I think for me in talking about anything, like the reason why I have to get down to that like gritty bottom layer of the lasagna, like the one that's like stuck to the bottom of the pan. Mm-hmm. I'll lift that up a little bit because, you know, I, you got to be honest about wherever you are and just like aware of like that sort of the etymology of any place you're in, you know? Um, and Ole Miss makes that a really, really uh, interesting task.
0: Um, When it comes to racial issues, Ole Miss does not have a good track record, to say the least. Do you think that the leadership of the university, the administration, the Board of Trustees, do you think that they recognize this, and do you think that they're trying to make some positive changes?
1: I think when I was there, I think the answer was yes. But I also think that state leadership, which consistently has not been Ole Miss alum, they'll have been from the south of the state. And so they will be like University of Southern Mississippi, um, or they'll, for instance, Tate Reeves, the current governor, went to private school at Millsaps College. Um, When I was there, there was a lot of hoopla about taking down the state flag. Um, And I think I was um, part of that, in fact. Um, But they were like, Ole Miss has to fly the Mississippi flag. Um, But like Jackson State, right down there by the state capitol does not fly from the state flag and for good reason but you're not going up there threatening people um the ku klux klan's not going down to jsu um protesting for the state flag to continue flying so um i think that the people who work there though um you know it's a mixed bag but i do think that these people are just professionals and they see the writing on the wall like no one like you know you know, this is always going to be like the sort of like vestiges of the Confederate South are always going to be there, you know, because Colonel Reb hasn't been a thing at Ole Miss since the 90s. Playing Dixie hasn't been a thing for quite a long time. Um, but I'm there and say 2011, and this is like a 20 year past issue, but people are still bringing it back up. And then I meet, you know, every five years or so, another set of young people still having these sort of like same arguments. And it's um I think that's part of it. I think people want Ole Miss to be this thing that like perpetuates this like southern fantasy, um, like this bizarre world where somehow like the enslavement of others like could have like a net benefit for everyone. Um, with no looking at like the trauma and no looking at like its impacts because you can get drunk at your party school and you can get your degree and go home and like, why, why think about all that bad stuff? Why don't we just think about the fact that we're hanging out together and uh, this alcoholic paradise, you know? So. Right.
0: <laughs> okay. So we've spent a lot of time in Mississippi and I would love to keep talking about it, but our time is running a little thin here. So how did you wind up in New York City?
1: Um, the answer that I give when I have self-respect is I wanted to go to grad school, which is okay. true. By the way, I applied for graduate school um and I wanted to be out of Mississippi I I knew I wanted to teach and I knew that I wanted to teach Latin and so Hunter CUNY Hunter College has the only Latin teacher program in New York City there is a UMass Amherst which a lot of Latin teachers I respect went to I think a program in Arizona and I thought I don't want to live in either of those other two places so New York it is um but I also had a boyfriend at the time who was living in New York and I was like Mm -hmm. ah you know why not chase my heart up to get my master's degree? And at least if he doesn't work out, I still get the degree. And turns out that's how it's been going. Yeah, don't have the guy, but, okay. you know.
0: <laughs> so you, you left journalism behind. Was it difficult to make the transition from being a journalist to being a teacher?
1: I am going to say, well, no and yes. Um, the no was because, you know, starting with when we talked about, say, the Dear White Gays article, right? Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, I'm only thinking about um, my argument as it pertains to their, um, you know, where I am in the world. But then I also had, for instance, a lot of white gay friends who found so much community and beauty in the like lived experiences of Black women. And I realized, you know, I limit myself a lot um, in this world where being paid to have an opinion can really limit you Um, And your ability to explore ideas and just remain teachable. Um, I think that if I had sort of kept up with this sort of wall, that I would never have been able to appreciate the fact that, like, I could live in a place like New York City that has, you know, gay elders, which is incredible. Like, you know, all of these ideas that I think studying Latin in the classical world and ancient people made me think about, you know. And then I get into, and so that's why I went into reporting. I said, editorials are whatever, but I'm 21, you know, and um, I care about people and I want to learn. And so I do journalism, but the money's not that awesome. And people weren't treating me very well as a worker. Um, And so I thought, and then of course, the Trump administration was happening and I hated the way that like journalism discourse was going. And I said, I want to be in a spot where I never feel as if, I can be afraid of having a conversation with my fellow human being, but I want to do that from a place where I like it, where I could talk about what I like rather than what I don't and use what I'm interested in as a way to examine the world around me. So I loved it. I was like, I am committed to this teaching thing. Um, I'm going to do it. I don't care what, what happens. You know, I didn't romanticize the kids. I didn't think I was going to save a child's life. But I said, this is a career that I want, you know, good or bad. Um, this is where I want to be. Um, so no, in that regard, yes. And children are so nice to you when you're a journalist and they are so mean to you. <laughs> 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 that level of adult authority, when you're just a journalist in the classroom was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to talk to you. And then you get in there and you have to tell them to shut up and sit down, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then it's a whole different vibe. I really had to mature in ways that I don't think that I would have had I stayed a journalist. Um, to be a teacher. So I think that was it. The growth has been really fun to go through, I can say now.
0: Okay, so you've been teaching now for three years?
1: I've been teaching for, I think, five years. Five oh,
0: years, okay. Okay. Um, so we desperately need more young people getting into teaching, Latin teaching, really teaching, period, because so many people are leaving the profession in droves. And we desperately need young teachers to stay in the profession. So how, how can we keep you, Sierra, in the classroom? When I say we, I mean we as the classics community, What what can we do, what can classical organizations do to support young teachers like you, to nurture you, to encourage you, and to convince you to keep teaching <laughs> and not to go back to journalism or to some other potentially more lucrative field?
1: Right. I think it really is the presence of jobs and the protection of those jobs. Um, Speaking of charter schools, when I first moved to New York City, I I, I wasn't going to do that off of any money I brought from home. I had a thousand dollars and five pairs of pants like I had to I had to do something, you know. (laughs) And so I found a charter school and I grew so much as a person and I had fabulous students and like my Latin improved so much. And my classroom management and ideas about teaching changed so much, but my work environment stunk. It stinks, 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 stinks. Perfect passive participles, right? It was awful. <laughs> Hated it. Hated everything about working at that school. And I needed to feel respected as a worker. Um, because I was working, I cared and I felt micromanaged and I felt as if any of the skills that I was trying to learn from this expensive degree that I was getting, I couldn't implement them because of whatever levels of bureaucracy. And you know me, I mean, Latin teachers, right? I'm not one to flout tradition or hierarchy or um, institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, It is what it is, but like, come on, Like, do you really need me to turn in a lesson plan to you every 30 seconds to the history teacher so you can ask me where my exit ticket is? You don't need that. okay? I need to have space. Do you need to do the IB program when I have children in my classroom who were in like Spanish two 30 minutes ago? Um, Is anyone really benefiting from a Latin education if the goal is sort of like to try to slam Cicero over their heads and try to make people feel good about doing that rather than like having like a genuine sort of buy-in to whatever they can get from the language, you know? Right. Um, so I think that would be good. Yeah.
0: Okay. In addition to the classical community supporting young teachers, what do you think that the classical community can do better in terms of improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field?
1: So diversity and equity and inclusion happen with um, significant relationship building, and I often hear um, that like the key to DEI and the you know, the high school, adolescent Latin classroom is um, comprehensible input. And that's an opinion that stresses me out because um, the key to DEI is school integration. You need an integrated workforce. You need integrated classrooms. And, you know, Lingo Latina per se illustrata is not going... To like stand there next to like Rosa Parks and MLK, you know, (laughs) in the (laughs) line of like human diversity, equity, and inclusion, like you know, treatment, you know, because I myself, um, you know, I um, like comprehensible input, of course, as a pedagogical practice, and a lot of really brilliant people I know do too. Um, At my school, I typically veer towards grammar and translation, Um, but. Um, I don't have um, an, like, enough Black and Latino kids uh, and just in my classroom. Um, and I think that like, in the world where we have, um, I don't know if you've seen the Latin subreddit, but it is kind of incel central, right? It's so bad. And then on top of that, like you've got like these um, classical charter schools, like cropping up based on this idea that like, Western civilization is going to be what saves us all, but that's not going to save us all. That is a very like particular um, group of people who have immense political and social power. Um, and so I think that we need to be paying attention to that, Um In particular, and I think that the movement towards justice in classics, um, I don't think it can happen in the academy. And I say that meaning like I don't think it happens at the university level. Mm -hmm. I do think it starts with kids. Um, You've got to be able to have people going out and saying that I believe in the public school experiment. Um, I believe that all children have actually need to have access to an education. That's not a charter school, that's not a privatized situation. Um, uh in order for classics to be a thing. Because there is a black tradition of classical studies. Sure. Um, you know, like uh what did I say to someone? Like, you know, I got a reconstruction job, you know, say <laughs> like I'm a black lady Latin teacher. Um And, you know, when I worked at that charter school, you know, that was the first and probably the last time I'll ever be able to teach um, a mostly, say, Black classroom full of children. And I think that those experiences should grow. So I'm not saying that, like, comprehensible input isn't a good thing. Excellent for differentiation, for sure. Um, And also just as a baseline pedagogical practice. But that's not it's not the fix. I think that people think it is like you got you got to do bigger than that
0: and now you're working at hunter college high school which is often rated as one of the very top public schools in the country tell us about that briefly
1: so uh i was suffering at that charter school and uh, my graduate program is cuny hunter college and hunter college high school is a magnet of that school Mm -hmm. an email saying like hey uh there's a teacher opening and i said lord in heaven please get me out of here i'm gonna cry i don't want to work anymore and i called a friend and i said look here's my lesson plan. Please let me teach it to you. Critique me in every single way. Like I was practicing. I said, I'm going to get this job and praise the Lord. I got this job, but it was night and day for my charter school experience because, um, you know, my students at that school had come from an educational background. That's way different. I think than the students at Hunter now, Hunter is high school is an Ivy league feeder. Right. And it was a rocky start because I could not just yet get the hold on the pacing and the thing also about kids who know that their school is an ivy feeder is that they of course test right and they push and they pride like you're a young person i'm a woman you know of course i'm black i'm not saying that my kids are racist but i am also saying i'm just an unfamiliar entity um, for many of my students in their you know education but i will say as the like hunter um either like an experience like that makes you curious about ways you can improve and ways you can sort of roll or it makes you just sort of resentful of the children, I think. And you, but you sort of find your way out. Um, I've just gotten deeper and deeper in. It's been quite nice. Um, My students are just the zaniest little nerds. I could have ever had the pleasure of getting to know, but I am a zany big nerd. So I think we're compatible. (laughs) Okay. (laughs)
0: So one obvious difference comparing Mississippi and New York is the cost of living. Is it difficult to be a teacher in New York City for that reason?
1: Yes. Um, So speaking of access to schools, um, one conversation, you know, Hunter College High School is considered a gifted and talented school. And there, I think, is a lot of criticism of what G&T means for students. But I mean, exceptional education is just um, differentiation, you know. Um, and that school, of course, um, is you know what it is. You have to take a test to get in. Um, so, also, the school is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, it's kind of hard to retain teachers who are Black and Latino um, if, like you, as a Black or Latino teacher, are trying to educate children who look like you um and um probably just aren't in the upper east side um and if you're in east harlem for instance you might not be at a ps um public school whatever number Mm -hmm. you might be say at a charter school additionally it is extremely extremely difficult to complete the teacher education programs i want to say um because like Especially for me coming out of state, I had to, it was out of pocket for me, Um, out of state tuition as well. And I definitely took out those loans um, to be able to do it. And I had to work at the same time. Um, So absolutely some institutional barriers to the type of um, educational goals that schools have. And I'll say that I really liked my school. I feel so respected as a worker and as an adult and as someone who wants to teach there. Um, But just like any other place, I think, in the city, um, I think in some ways is sort of a victim to um, just uh, the ways that the city develops around the school. Right.
0: Well, I would love to keep talking about education policy in New York and Mississippi with you, but our time is about out here. So let's jump to our closing segment. Sex Carissa Maire, six <laughs> of your most beloved things, Sierra, as a classicist, number one, your favorite Latin textbook.
1: Eki Romani in Pictura. You know, I read that first week of Latin class and I said, "Ooh, I'm going to have an A in here.
0: <laughs> all right. So I think we're 34 episodes in. You are the first person to name Eki Romani. Yeah. Uh, um, I, we all have our favorites. I'm not going to push back too much. I push back very gently against a favorite item One time, and I got called out on Twitter for it. Um, (laughs) Just as a follow-up question the uh, the carriage in the ditch.
1: Oh gosh, are are you
0: okay with that?
1: (laughs) I I was like, look, I'm not going to sit here stuck in the ditch because my school taught Cambridge Latin course, and I just could not. Get down with Cacilius, uh after. Well, not even Cochilius. I'm actually fine with Cochilius in the Red Book. You know, the Red Book has a whole lot going on until the whole – no spoilers, you know, but they all die. A they game. all die, yeah. <laughs> and then you get into the Blue Book, and I just could not care. Um, it was so boring. And so okay. I, I – yeah, I care money. Interesting. For kids, for it's a little all right. Re-locking.
0: Okay. A, a first for the Quintilian podcast. Great. Number two, your favorite place to visit in Italy – it's never been. All right. Well, I recommend it. Number three, your favorite work of classical literature or your favorite classical author?
1: Mm, I like Apuleius. The Golden Ass was a phenomenal read. And Catullus. Yeah, those two.
0: Great choice. Number four, your favorite movie or TV program about the classical world?
1: Oh, Hercules. Disney movie, by far. That gospel choir of the muses. Best decision I think Disney's ever made.
0: Okay. Number five, your favorite character in classical mythology.
1: You know what? Atalanta. I like when girls run fast. You know, let the girls be jocks. So, yeah.
0: Her. Excellent. And then finally, number six, your favorite Latin expression.
1: (sighs) Oh, gosh. Mea culpa. You know? (laughs) My bad is something I say often in English. So, I think mea culpa. Uh, It's a a humility, you know? Right. Uh, Yeah. So it's, a,
0: it's a good thing for a teacher to say whenever the uh, occasion calls for it. Well, Sierra, I enjoyed talking to you. I'm I'm sorry that you left the journalism field behind because we also really need good journalists and we need good journalism for to preserve democracy. Frankly, um, but I am very happy that you're now part of the Latin teaching community.
1: Thank you. It's really awesome being here. I learned so much from you. Thank you for what you do. I've had a lot of fun listening to the Contillion podcast since I got your email.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Sierra.